0: One of my favorite verses in the Bible comes from Psalm chapter 34, and it reads like this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Let's pray yet again one more time. Father, my prayer tonight is now for us, that you would help us to see your word clearly, that we would taste you and indeed see that you are good. My prayer, Father, is that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten, because we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from you. So let your word bear fruit in our hearts and lives, we pray. Amen. Well, today of course is January the 11th, not 2016, but 2017, right? How many times have you made that mistake? Have you had to write any checks? Twice, right? I have, and I'm trying, trying really hard to remember that. Well, a couple days ago, 11 days ago, on January the 1st, I issued a challenge or a call to the church body asking and encouraging you to make 2017 the most Bible-saturated year of your life, the most Bible-saturated year of your life. And I, and I was encouraging you to, to prayerfully cultivate the habit of daily Bible reading, we're doing this because we're working off one of the promises that Jesus gives us in the book of John. In John chapter 15, he, he told his disciples, remember that, that if his word abides in us, it will bear fruit in our lives. Another challenge that I issued you was also that, that you would develop a plan, not to just read part of the Bible or the easy parts, but the whole Bible, the whole Bible. It doesn't have to be in a year, but gradually, over time, to, to read all of God's words, all of the words that He has given us for our instruction. And I've been encouraged to hear many of you are, are, are striving to do this. I've, I've heard from a number of you who have made new commitments or have, are working up a plan or, and, and, are, and are tackling this, and that's, that's encouraging we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. But tonight, I want to actually revisit this. I want to revisit the practice of reading the Bible. Because I'm convinced that for the Christian, one of the most important things that you can do in your life, and I I mean this, I'm not exaggerating, one of the most important things that you can do in your life is to cultivate the habit of regular Bible intake. And so I've been praying this week and I've been praying tonight that that the Lord would make a little bit more progress in our hearts to continually stir up our desires to, to read the Bible. But I want to approach things a little bit differently than we did last Sunday. Tonight, I want to try to motivate you a little bit differently. I want to try to entice you towards the Scriptures. I would like to do, actually tonight, an extended meditation on the biblical theme of eating the Bible. I hope that you've already eaten dinner, because we're going to be talking about eating a lot. And you may be uncomfortable if you have, if you have not eaten, okay? And I don't recommend literally eating the Bible. We're talking metaphorically, of course, right? Because, I mean, but but that sounds strange, right? I mean, what what does it mean to, to eat the Bible? Well, this is, in fact, one of the most frequent illustrations that the Bible uses for how we should be interacting with the Scriptures. It's, we could say, it is a biblically inspired metaphor, right? You remember your metaphors, or it's, it's, or a simile, it's, it's, and it's found all over the Bible. Here are, here's a sampling of what we see in the scriptures, right? In Psalm, in Psalm 119, we read, "'How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth.'" Or in Jeremiah chapter 15, the prophet Jeremiah says that that your words were found, speaking to God, your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and a delight to my heart. If you can't see the screen, that's okay. You can, you can look some of these up, but uh, but I'll keep, keep going through these. In Matthew chapter 4, perhaps this is one that you are most familiar with, right? You remember when Jesus said during the temptation in the wilderness, right? It is, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, this is just a sampling, but do you see can you hear some of the the repeated the repeated theme of eating and and enjoying uh, the bible in in terms of of food okay so this is, this is God's idea. This is God's metaphor. This is His, and He's given it to us for a reason. And my prayer has been that that, this, that it would have its intended effect on us tonight. And so, I would like to explore this with you this evening. And I'd like to actually begin in Psalm chapter 1. This is the same text that I mentioned a few times last week, and it's one of my favorite places in the Bible to to go to uh, remind myself of how important this is. And and so, so listen with me as I read. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf does not wither. In all, in all, in all that he does, he prospers. I want to especially draw your attention to the two words that describe this blessed man's attitude towards the Scripture. Here in in verse 2, we read delight, right? This man, his delight is in the law of God. And we also see, what does he do? He meditates. He meditates day and night. If you're thinking about someone sitting Indian style, you know, humming, it's not what we're talking about here. That's a different kind of meditation, right? He is devouring. He is spending time in it, pulling it over and over in his mind. Some of you may know that I have an eight-year-old boxer, right? A dog named Lincoln. Okay? Hey, Link. Right? Okay, so, um, and like most dogs, Lincoln has fondness for a good bone, right? He, he enjoys a good bone. And now I admit there was a time in Lincoln's life where he enjoyed bones more frequently, namely when he enjoyed an elevated position in the more household as the only child, right? He's now not the only one and he is not a child, right? He's not a child, right? But uh, I remember one year in a weak moment, this might have been Christmas or his birthday, my wife has his birthday on our calendar, and it gets me so confused to see Lincoln's birthday in July, which is supposed to be, but uh, anyway, so and maybe it was his birthday, but but I was at the grocery store, and they were selling these, like the butcher had was selling some of these massive bones. I mean, it was the thing was this big, and I don't know, I spent four or five dollars, and I bought Lincoln a real big old bone. I mean, it was almost as long as he is big, and I brought that thing home to him, and my goodness, this dog dog was happy, right? Ling is a pretty happy dog, but he was thrilled, right? He would carry that bone everywhere. It was an outside toy because this thing was disgusting, but he would carry this, he would carry this bone with him everywhere for the week or so that it took him to eat it. All right, and, and Lincoln had this special bone-eating routine. If you have a dog, you, you know what I'm talking about here, right? He would jump and prance in circles. He'd let out a little yip of, of excitement and, and, you know, barking with affection and delight. And then eventually, after his antics were done, he would settle down and get to the real work, eating his bone, right? And usually what he'd do, he'd drag it away to some corner of the yard where he couldn't be molested, and, and, and he would settle down and eat his bone. You've seen how dogs do this, right? He'd, he'd gnaw on it. He'd turn it over. He'd, he'd, he'd spin it around. He would lick it. He'd worry about it. Sometimes he'd even roll over on his back on top of the bone, back and forth. Have you ever seen, ever seen a dog do that? And it was clear that he was enjoying himself. And sometimes he would make this, this happy kind of growl, right? You know, have you heard a dog do this, this happy kind of growling noise, like a soft rumble? Like if you weren't, if you weren't watching the spectacle, you might think that it was a cat making a purr or something like that. It, it, you know, sometimes it could sound a little bit scary if you didn't know what was going on. But, but Lincoln wasn't being particularly hostile or, or defensive, right? Uh, though I would not recommend trying to take the bone; that would have been a bad idea. But he was just happy. He was just he was happy and enjoying himself and totally absorbed in his bone. Okay, now I'm telling you this because of this strange sort of obscure verse here that I want to look at in Isaiah chapter 31. Let me try to explain. Here in, in Isaiah 31, the Lord is explaining to his people how he is eagerly and joyfully and willingly going to come to their defense. And he uses this expression, For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or young lion growls, growls over his prey. Okay, now you don't have to understand all this going on here. Let's just talk about this word growl, right? This, this image of a lion growling over his prey. Now, when we read the Bible, there are many times that we need to slow down. We need to slow down and and think about what's happening and try to picture the images that the Bible is is, is giving us. And if you think about this simile for just a moment, you can get this image in, in your head, right? A, a lion growling over his prey. He's already he's already killed it. He's eating it, and his, the goat or whatever. And 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 that's kind of like what Lincoln was doing with his with his bone, right? He was, it's the same kind of growling that Lincoln does over his precious dog bones. He'd make these throaty rumbles of pleasure as he slowly savors and enjoys his prize. Now, what's interesting to me is this word "growl," right? This word "growl." It's 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 a Hebrew word that is usually translated uh, to, to meditate, right? It's, it's a word that is used in, in, in other places. It's, it's, uh, it's the same word that is used here in Psalm chapter 1, speaking of the blessed man's delight in the Scriptures, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he growls day and night. Okay, he meditates day and night. You see, you see the image that, that, that's coming here? Isaiah uses this word to describe the way that a lion would growl over his prey and the way Lincoln growls over his bone. When I think of meditating on the scriptures, a lot of times I think of, you know, sitting quietly in the chapel and, 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 and listening, you know, and listening to harp music while you read the Bible or something something like that. Or some nice lady in a rose garden on a stone bench with the Bible open, sitting up, you know, real straight. That, that, that's often what we think about. But, but when Isaiah's lion or my dog, Lincoln, meditates. That's not what they're doing. It's a, it's a slow, deliberate affair. They, they gnaw, and they chew, and they swallow. They, they digest, and they get nourishment, right? And it's with this graphic, this vivid picture, I, now that that's in your mind, I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, does this describe how you approach the Bible? Now, are certainly things in your life that you get this excited about, right? You may may show it a little bit differently. I hope you show it differently than Lincoln does. but, But there are things that you get excited about. Is the Bible one of them? Is it something that you growl with delight over? Do you meditate? Do you linger? Do you muse over the scriptures? But I think this is what the Lord invites us to do when we come to the scriptures. Oh, taste And see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so I suppose that that brings us to our first point this evening. And that is we are given the invitation to taste. The invitation to taste. God invites us through his word to taste and see that he is good. And how else can we do that than by reading and abiding in his word? I don't know of any other way to really do that than by reading and abiding in his word. That's at least the primary way. But think about this invitation for a moment. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, every word matters in the Bible. Every single word matters. The psalmist does not say, see that the Lord is good, right? Doesn't say that. There are two other important words there, right? He is not inviting us to just learn some theology. He's not inviting us to just get some facts about God in our head. He is inviting us to experience him. He's inviting us to come on the trip, not just to look at the picture, right? You can come look at the picture of the Grand Canyon that we took back on, you know, when we visited there, but it's totally different than visiting the Grand Canyon because it's, it's one thing to look at the picture of the Grand Canyon and it's a very different thing to stand on its edge, right? This invitation, this command makes it impossible to observe God at a safe distance, So often, that's what we want to do. It's not enough to just see that the Lord is good. That's not enough. We're invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. In fact, it's the tasting that enables us to see. Let me try to explain what I mean. Some of you may have made some sort of New Year's resolution to watch what you eat. Okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but uh, I know you're miserable right now <laughs> because it's like day eleven. You're trying to like fight the cookies and, and and you know whatever it is, and and you know maybe it's time to slim down. And you, of all people, are painfully aware of the distant of the difference in tasting and seeing. Right? For example. I can assure you that it is far more satisfying to eat a slice of my mother's chocolate Bavarian tort than it is to look at a picture of it. However, it is nice to look at, isn't it? <laughs> right? But it is not nearly as good to ta- as it is to, to taste it. I actually keep a picture of that on my phone. <laughs> Trust me, it is far better to to taste the cold cream cheese icing that is generously spread over and in between four thick, dark pieces of chocolate cake sprinkled simply but boldly with semi-sweet chocolate chips, right? We must taste in order to see. And think about what's involved in, in the process of tasting. Tasting is impossible without getting close to food, right? You have to open yourself up to it. You must carve out a little time and then draw near. You have to pick up the food, right? You have to place it on your mouth and and onto your tongue where God has designed and given you some 10,000 taste buds to work and distinguish the endlessly various combinations of six general flavors, right? And then you have to chew, if you're smart, you'll chew slow, right? And then you swallow, and then you digest, and, and your body will metabolize the food, and it will literally change the chemical makeup of your body. But it all begins by taking the time and the willingness to open yourself up and to taste and see. You cannot know God unless you taste God. You can't. And we taste God through His Word, I think the reason that so many of us are just not that impressed with God, that we're, that we're kind of bored by Him, is because we have spent most of our lives tasting other things. We've spent most of our life delighting in other things besides God, and so we don't have an appetite for Him. You eventually lose an appetite for a food if you don't eat it for a long time, and I fear that that's what we do to God. You will not worship a God that does not impress you. And you will not fear a God. And you will not obey a God that doesn't excite you or cause you to tremble. In other words, the entire direction of your life will be impacted by your experience of God through the scriptures. Believers, God is literally changing our spiritual makeup as we read the Bible. I know you don't feel it. Trust me. I did this today. I didn't feel anything, right? I didn't feel anything. It's usually a change that is totally imperceptible, but God tells us that he changes us through his word. Now, I've mentioned that the Bible uses this rich, this food-type language to describe how we're supposed to interact with the Bible. And one of the most common ways that we read about this most well-known is that of bread. Now, if you're one of those unfortunate folks with gluten sensitivity, I'm sorry, you're going to have to bear with me, because the bread I'm talking about tonight has extra gluten. I just want to throw that in there. I don't, I don't know why. Gluten is biblical. That's my point. It's a well-established biblical theme. Okay, anyways, the second point that we come to tonight is that the Bible is daily nourishment for us. Now, I've already mentioned here in Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but from every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is where Jesus is, he's quoting all the way back from the book of Deuteronomy, where where, where God is saying that, that he humbled the people of Israel, and he let them be hungry, but he fed them with manna. So that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but makes Every, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was referring to Israel's dependence on manna in the wilderness. And there's other places where we read about this, this bread, but I think that this is enough for us to see the primary picture here is one of nourishment. It's one of nourishment, right? It's different than chocolate Bavarian tort. We'll get to that later, trust me. But the picture here is of daily nourishment. Now, there are some people... I think they're maybe evil these nutrition people right these nutrition experts who tell us that bread is bad for us right because it's high in calories and all these other reasons you know and but for most of the world and for most of history bread has been the most basic most plentiful cheapest most affordable type of food that's why jesus said give us this day our daily gluten free grain free whatever no he, our daily bread right our daily bread the picture is that god's word is nourishing the words of God are nourishing. They provide spiritual calories, nutrition, amino acids, and, and proteins, things that we cannot live without. The Bible provides the energy that fuels the Christian life. I used to, my wife and I used to... Uh, Help runners who were trying to start running. Right, it can be an overwhelming thing to do, and so we used to help them by by trying to uh, you know help someone who had never run before, and we'd kind of help them put together a little a little plan to run you know up to a five k and maybe a little further if they wanted. But just imagine, I didn't have this exactly happen to me, but just imagine if one of the folks we're trying to help came to me and said, "Hey Nathan, you know, I started your running plan. I, I ran and I walked three days this week." but I feel miserable, right? I feel absolutely miserable. My hands are shaking, and, and I'm tired all the time, and my stomach's ground, and I, I just, I feel totally weak, right? And I said, well, okay, well, if, if you're running too hard, you can walk, right? Slow down. You got to make sure you stretch and recover where, you know, wear the right running shoes, and make sure you wear something weird looking, because that's what runners wear, right? You know, do all this stuff, and then and they come back, and they say, you know, I tried all this stuff. I wore the neon and all the fancy stuff, and I stretched, and I walked, and I still feel totally, totally weak, right? And I'd say, okay, well, tell me, what have you been eating? Oh, I haven't eaten in four days. I had a little cotton candy three days ago, right? Uh, and, 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 you know, some Skittles this morning. I'm like, well, there's the problem, right? You need food. Many of us are trying to walk and run through this life without spiritual food, You wonder why you experience so little spiritual power in your life. It's because you're starving. You wonder why you can't pray for more than 20 seconds. You wonder why you can't get the upper hand on that besetting sin. You you wonder why you're so bored in church. It's because you're spiritually starving. You have to eat. When Jesus told Satan, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, he was not joking. This is what he meant. You cannot fight sin while you're spiritually starving. You won't have any energy to do it. You have to eat. The Bible is how you grow. We see this all over the scriptures. One of my favorite spots, mainly because... There's probably going to be a newborn infant in my life, and this is going to be very graphically real for me, right? Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. Have you ever seen a newborn infant long for milk? All right? This is not a peaceful thing. Right? Walls are getting torn down, right? There's like hair getting pulled out, right? It, it, they're desperate. They long for the milk that comes, in, and God tells us to be like these infants, That you may grow up into salvation. Many of us have not grown because we have not longed for the milk. In fact, there's a sense where we have grown to the degree that we have longed for this spiritual milk. For most of us, no one needs to tell us to eat every day. You certainly do not have to remind me to eat, right? I remember quite well, right? We know that. If we go for a few hours without food, we feel like we're going to die, right? Do you feel like that sometimes? It's, I haven't eaten in three and a half hours. Get away from me. And it's because we've been conditioned through years of experience to understand our dependence on food for strength, right? Our bodies depend on it, and we expect it. Yet most of us haven't been conditioned. We haven't learned to crave spiritual nourishment in the same way. Whenever I'm talking with people about reading the Bible, the most common excuse that I hear is, I don't have time to read the Bible. Okay, we talked about this last week. I don't have time to read the Bible. I've never heard anybody say, any sane person say, I don't have time to eat. (laughs) You make time to eat. Sometimes seven, eight, nine times a day, right? You make, you make time to eat. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible is spiritual nourishment for you. So eat. But the Bible describes itself in another way, a fun way. The Bible also describes itself as being sweet, the Bible is sweet. Psalm 119, 103, we've already read this. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 19, verse 10 says, How sweet are your words to my mouth. How sweet, are my wor- how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And then on down we read, More are they to be desired than fine gold, even much fine gold, sweet are- sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Now once again, this is descriptive, figurative language and you can't blow past it or it won't be very helpful to you. Whenever you read of images and and descriptive kind of language like this, you got to slow down and think about the image, right? Why would the psalmist say that God's words are sweet, even sweeter than honey? What's he trying to say, right? What's the psalmist trying to convey? Ever since I was a kid, I have had to fight my sweet tooth. And that's because sugar is so addicting, right? Scientists have found, I've been reading about this recently, uh, scientists, you know, when you read about how bad sugar is, it doesn't mean that you don't want to eat it. <laughs> right? Scientists have found that it's very easy to become addicted to sugar, right? Like we needed a scientist to tell us that. What do these guys do? I do not know, right? But, but sugar stimulates the same pleasure centers in the brain that, that, that cocaine and, and heroin do, I'm told. Sugar provides this immediate hit of pleasure to our brains. And if we don't regulate our behaviors carefully, we'll find ourselves entangled in some bad habits, right? Some researchers give practical tips on how to break a bad habit. One of the things they tell you is that you got to pay attention to the cue, you gotta pay attention to the cue. When you walk past the cabinet that's got the Hershey Wonka bars, do they still make those? I don't know. When you walk past the cabinet with the wonka bar, that's that could be the cue that says, Hey, I want I want I want something sweet, right? And, and you gotta figure out what's cueing my craving for sugar. Is it the end of a long day? Is it you know sitting in front of the T V? Is it walking by the cabinet? You know, we we know how all these things work. We don't have to sit down and think about whether or not the sugar is going to bring us pleasure. Right? We, know, we know what it tastes like. We're conditioned to know that. You see, the psalmists had been conditioned to experience God's word as being sweet. They knew it. They tasted it so many times. Time and time again, they had gone to the Scriptures and and they had the first few books of the Bible and again and again, they had found pleasure because the Bible is sweet. If you give time to the Scriptures, if you linger over it, if you go back to it day after day after day, you will find this to be true. If you let your taste buds adjust a little you will find it so deeply satisfying that you'll begin, you'll begin to depend emotionally and spiritually on God's Word for your very well-being. But you can't rush. Often you have to slow down and enjoy the scriptures. So often the Bible, reading the Bible, is a lot like letting a very slowly dissolving lozenge melt imperceptibly in your mouth. Why its homeopathic benefits spread slowly throughout your body. Church, I want you, I long for you to taste and see that the Bible is sweet. It's not some drudgery that you just have to get through. Reading the Bible is the door. It's the doorway to sweet communion and fellowship with the Lord. A pleasure that's to be enjoyed day after day, but just like any new habit, it takes time to form. It takes time, and so I pray that the Lord would condition your heart to experience the Scriptures the same way the Psalmist says, "For I find my delight in your commands, which I love." But the Bible, the Bible is sweet, right? But the Bible is also sometimes bitter. Sometimes the Bible is bitter. One of the most striking images for reading the Bible is a scene that's repeated a couple different times throughout the whole Bible, and it's where I get this provocative phrase, eating the Bible. That's because prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then the Apostle John, each of them was given a scroll and then commanded to eat it. Look at this instance we have here in, in Revelation. okay? Revelation chapter 10. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Once again, we are reminded that reading the Bible is not just some mindless scanning of information to check it off on your list, right? It's not the point. That's not the point of a Bible reading plan is to fly through it and make sure you check it off and don't get behind. That's not, that's not the point. John doesn't just read the scroll. <laughs> he eats it. <laughs> he, uh, he digests it. The scroll literally got into his nerve endings, into his reflexes, and into his imagination. But it wasn't all pleasant, was it? It was both sweet, but it was also bitter. You probably know that the Bible contains some words that are difficult to hear. There is a word of judgment as well as grace. God is a God of love and God is a God of wrath. God's word both comforts and it convicts. It's like a balm for, for a wound and yet it is a two-edged sword that pierces. The book of Revelation tells us of things that are hard to hear and yet in the end they are sweet one of the main, one of the brief lessons for us here is that we should not shy away from the Bible just because it makes us uncomfortable. God's Word and His providences are sometimes bitter, but that doesn't mean that they, they are cruel or useless. I remember that when I was a kid I was helping my I would help my mom make chocolate chip cookies right have perhaps you have done this the we used the toll house chocolate chip cookies and um, and I I remember uh, I loved how the vanilla smelled right I loved how the vanilla smelled each time when my mom or one time when my mom wasn't looking I I have you ever done this you know you know I'm gonna say took a swig Took a swig and and I got busted because I made this awful face, right? Because in spite of the heavenly smell, vanilla extract is really quite bitter, <laughs> right? But when you mix it in with the rest of the cookie ingredients, what's it do? It adds to the flavor. It adds to the flavor. I remember a season of my life when I was really struggling with this, trying to develop the the habit of reading the Bible, but I would feel discouraged because so often I felt like the Bible was beating me up. Have you ever had this experience? You're reading the Bible and you're just like, Man, I don't do that. I don't do that. Oh man, I struggle with that, right? I'm struggling with that. I don't love my wife like that. I just over and over again, like I don't man, I don't love my neighbor as myself, and, and I don't I don't love my wife like Christ loved the church. And my goodness, love the Lord my God with all of my heart. All of it? Like I never do that. I've never done that. And 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 the Bible constantly shows me how stupidly selfish and how worldly I can be. So concerned about what other people think of me. I was getting discouraged because it seemed like that all the Bible did was tell me how bad I am. Have you ever, have you ever had this experience? And, and nobody likes to be told how bad they are. Until I realized, that's actually part of the point. That's part of the point. In the Bible, the bad news always pays the way for the good news. God uses the law to reveal to me that I am a sinner. That I fail, not in a few ways, but in so many ways. And you see, I will never appreciate the mercy of God until I understand the bitter fact that I am far more sinful than you think and than I realize. All of us underreact to our sin. All of us. We usually don't even see it. But when we do, we downplay it. We elevate everybody else's sin and we downplay our our own sin. But the Bible does not let you do that. The Bible doesn't let you do that. And sinners will never, you will never be able to taste that God is sweet until you understand some of the bitterness of the Bible. Because the bitterness of the Bible, the bitterness of the law, prepares the palate to enjoy the sweetness of the gospel. I know you've heard it before, but I've got to tell you again, that though we all, like sheep, have gone astray, forgiveness is available for those who place their hope in a Savior. Do you, see, do you know who loves Jesus the most? The people that see how big their sin is. The people who realize how big their debt of sin is. And then they marvel that he would save them. Sure, the Bible has some hard things to say. And it has some things that are difficult to understand. Some things that are hard to stomach. That's because you and I are not God, right? God's ways are higher than our ways, But we can take all of God's words, whether they are words of comfort or whether they are words of rebuke or affliction, and we can delight in them all. Because in the end, we trust the master chef. He is weaving together all of his providences, both bitter and sweet, to bring good to his people and glory to his name. This is what God does for us in the Bible. So sinner, take heart and rejoice for there is a Savior. You are far worse than you realize, but he is far better than you realize. It's the good news of the gospel. Let me end with one final word of caution and encouragement. And that is this. The Bible is not primarily for knowing about God. It's for knowing God. There's a difference. A.W. Tozer says it like this. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into Him and delight in His presence, that they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God Himself in the core and the center of their hearts. Church, my prayer for you tonight and this week has been that for each one of us, we would not just read the Bible for the Bible's sake. And we certainly wouldn't read the Bible for the sake of making others think we're smart or pious, but that we would read it to know God, taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you close with me in prayer? Father, we praise you that though we deserve nothing but wrath, That you in your infinite, stunning, staggering goodness have given us Christ, the Word. We thank you that you have preserved for us the scriptures that tell us how we can know you. And I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here, if, if any of us have not placed our faith in you, that you would awaken us to see the beauty of Christ as Savior. I pray, Father, for each of us that we would learn to love your word more than food. That we would obsess over it more than we obsess over food and our pleasures. And that ultimately we would both taste and see that you are good. We ask this in the name of Christ the word from God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.